destroying the entire universe. Welcome to Radio Free Demos, an Ixen Draconis fan podcast broadcasting for as long as possible from Asaph Hall at Lake Voltaire on Demos. Our broadcasting schedule has been intermittent lately because Lake Voltaire has been pointing into the inky blackness of space instead of the Phobos relay. Uh, sorry about that. This is Radio Free Demos, episode 29, So You Want to Be CEO. This week's topic spins out of a question Rain the Skunk asked on the Ixen Draconis Discord channel. What if the PCs wanted to make their own Megacorp? And I started off thinking this would be one of those 5, 10, 20 minute topics, but I think it'd be fun enough to cover in its own episode. But before we get started on that, but before we get started on that, there's some what's new from the Radio Free Demos website. And... But before we get started on that, who are you again? Oh, I'm Corbeau. <laughs> uh, and you are Ashtar and Wines. Thank you so much for being here. Hello. Hello. Uh, so I was going to ask you, since we're talking about CEOs and megacorps and starting your own monolithic company. What's your startup heavy hitter idea? I am going all in for the giant laser space frisbees concept. Sure. How would that work? Would you attach like giant laser hands to the ships who would fly between the darkness of inky space throwing laser frisbees back and forth? It's kind of like Gamera. Oh, right. The, sp the spinning <laughs> space turtle. That was some great hang time. I like, yeah, I like yeah. that. Yeah, if only the frisbees can hold that long. That's a take. That is a good question. How far can you skip a rock in space? <laughs> Are you skipping it at escape velocity? Well, it's, it's a, if you're in outer space. Well, it'll eventually circle back and end up in the galactic core over the course of at least three days. It'll end up somewhere. Maybe five days. I'm not really good at this game. My signature startup is Balliftics. Balliftics? Balliftics. With two Fs? Just one. Ordnance on demand. Oh! Get your cell phone. Push of a button. You can have a fully loaded automatic rifle ready for you. Live grenades dropped on your opponents, whoever you need. We're there when you're in a fight. That's pretty compelling. <laughs> can you order shells addressed to Target? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> And do you want gift wrap with that? Well, yes, I'd like a red and white striped sabo. It's like Amazon with bombs. <laughs> you can have the button that you press to get more bombs. It's big and red. Well, my, my idea is, is just a, a nonprofit to raise the awareness of adoption by lions. It's a bad idea. Okay. Because you know what the male lions do to, to babies. Kiss them? No. <laughs> they're they're no, no, known for killing babies. Oh. It's just a bad idea. Just don't let it happen. Are hyenas known for killing babies? No. Babies, baby hyenas kill each other. Oh, okay. <laughs> well then. It has taken you centuries to even grasp what we developed eons of your years ago. Well, the big news from HSD is still going to be the lore book for several months, I think. So instead, uh, talk about some new stuff we're working on on the Radio Free Demos website. The webpage codex.radiofreedemos.com. Right now, it's a repository of the articles we've created. But I'm hoping to open it up to other HSD reader content, uh, make sort of an archive of fan-driven materials. Content creators like you. Hmm. We've got one or two people that are interested already. And hopefully we'll talk up to them more, maybe get some audio from them as well. Cool. One related project that we're going to start picking up on as soon as possible. In the upcoming lore book, there is a map of the solar system and the main space lanes and travel routes throughout it. It's really pretty. You can probably have it on a mouse pad very soon. It's got a lot of big, big curving lines between the planets showing like all the major trade routes and... It has something on the order of 24 blue sky stations and 36, 40 space stations. Wow. 
picked out a little numbered bullets across the map. Uh, the sky is filled with these things, and some of them have been named by people who have participated in the Kickstarter. So we've spoken to Sev, the author, about this, and I'm hoping we can go ahead with a project to build an archive, a resource that describes these places. So if you have a space station in the lore book, if you have a blue sky in the lore book, and you want the world to know what it's like, what its unique features are, what travel opportunities there are, what game books there are, we're going to work with you. Uh, put it on the air and put it up on the website in the codex. What you might catch from the local toilet seats. <laughs> yes. So one of the first articles is going to be Voltaire Station. Once we've established what that's like. Small, messy. dark, uncomfortable, yeah. cold. Well, yeah. <laughs> smells like hyena. So that'll be a fun project to spin out over the next few months. And I'm hoping this becomes kind of a semi-canon resource. It's maybe even someday it'll make it into an Exodraconus book or one of the downloadable modules that are just going to be appearing on the HSD website. It's an infinite universe. There's a lot of possibilities. An infinite universe, but you only get to explore soul. Well, if you're starting to incorporate people's headcanon, it's still close to infinite. <laughs> received messages from their spaceships. For a while, it came in as just a lot of jumbled noise. So let's open up this week's topic. This is a question Rain the Skunk posed to the HSD Discord channel. What if the PCs wanted to make their own Megacorp? On the surface, I think it sounds like a pretty solid campaign goal. This is an absolutely horrible idea. Yes, on both. <laughs> Well, my first thought is there's nothing wrong with wanting things. Valid point. I mean, just because you want something doesn't mean it has any chance of actually happening. But if the, char if the group of characters strives towards it, that could be an entertaining series of adventures. So this is the tilting at windmills sort of plot model. Sure. Eudaimonia. That's my big word for the week. Do you want to? The, the, the notion that constantly striving for something is the best thing. Okay. It sounds kind of Greek. Yeah. So that's a fun way of setting up a great many horrible enemies. You might actually make some of the mid-level megacorps quite angry with you. Or amused. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe Marsco will blink. <laughs> Marsco won't blink. Every once in a while, Pulse comes by, points at your, your branding, just laughs and leaves. <laughs> <laughs> They've been doing this for like five centuries now. Yes. We know how to make a logo. Every little kitten kitten will be told that, you know, that they can grow up to be CEO of a megacorp, though. So I think it is fair to say that most people probably have that want or probably have that dream. It does make it a little bit different when you have first an adult and second a PC wanting this type of thing, though. Um, if you're just looking at this as character motivation, character background, then that's a great way to make an economic powerhouse type character. Well, if you want to be CEO, then you... You're going to need funding. Mm -hmm. But if you want that to be a little bit more of a campaign thing, that is certainly more approachable. But that's the point that you have to rope in the GM and start having the talk. Yeah. The, the worry with that is the CEO kind of has everything. I mean, you don't want characters to have everything. Characters should need to struggle. They should want things because if, if they're just happy where they are, if they're happy with what they've got, why should they venture? Oh, no, no, no. CEOs have a hard life. They have challenges that, that us normal folk cannot even comprehend. Mm -hmm. don't, don't, don't insult them by saying that their <laughs> life is easy. Sarcasm aside, having, <laughs> having been extremely poor and having been relatively financially stable and having a lot of friends that cover a wide range of financial brackets, pretty much everybody has about two scoops of misery, it seems. Yeah. Sometimes three, sometimes four, but you always have two scoops to start with, even a CEO. That's true. So we've already kind of split the question into three paths. There's what do you do if the PCs want to form a megacorp? What do you do if I want to form a megacorp? And is it reasonable for the PCs to form a megacorp? I'm kind of branching it off right there. The first one is let's set up a campaign that's going up a impossibly steep parabola of uh, grief and woe where they will never actually 
reach the top. And if they do, that's when the campaign ends with a lovely curtain and mm -hmm. uh, possibly applause from the audience. Are we talking about my campaign now? I have no idea. <laughs> Thus far, we're only going deeper into debt in your campaign. Right. So my attitude on that one is that I think I've mentioned that before on podcast, but anytime that you get a disparate group of individuals, they're kind of united on a course of action. I'm kind of assuming that within this world, they're putting together a microcorp. Sure. So they're somewhat incorporating to formalize the concept of working on, towards an objective. And I think there's some evidence in the text that when a mommy and daddy love each other very much, they incorporate. Yeah. <laughs> Not joking. So the question then is less, well, I want to be a megacorp. It's more, how can I get my current corporation to grow in power and size and influence? Yeah. And that is subtly different. That's not, oh, I just want to be a megacorp. That's, okay, I have this. Let's grow the business. And that's very actionable, both from a GM side and from a player side. Well, and I'd like to ask the question, is megacorp right for me a little later on? Not to cut you off too much. Mm -hmm. But also, if you're wanting to be a megacorp, does that mean you're currently a very, very large corporation? That's a question. I mean, or are you just starting from, you know, gosh, I'm, I love shining shoes. I want to be a megacorp someday. Yeah, that, that's a bit of a weird question. Obviously, the guy on the spaceport dock that shines people's shoes for a credit isn't going to turn that into a megacorp. Mm -hmm. That's that's not not megacorp material. If we have the the PC microcorp, what do they do? What what do they do that brings in business or that produces profit mm -hmm. or that generates some sort of activity that can become even more of a standard corporation that does business or that can hire others? So that's going to be the first hurdle for like a PC microcorp. And then you've got to expand that into something that can project station-wide, planet-wide or system-wide power to really start becoming a megacorp. And the existing megacorps don't leave any part of the market untapped. Right. Uh, I know. I, I see your face and I see the argument with the new one that's coming out <laughs> that that is breaking open a brand new market. Sure. Which is the game writer's prerogative. Absolutely. And the game master's prerogative. But within that. So before we take that step, though, are the PCs going to break out some new technological field that hasn't been created previously to start Making a new megacorp? Well, I have a question there, but go on. Or are they going to start taking chunks out of other people's portfolios and kind of assuming that kind of market control to be a megacorp? Right. Like five of the seven megacorps have this extremely slow growth business model. You've got Marsco, Pulse, ASR, and they've been working at building their branding and spinning off of each other for five centuries. But you've got a couple other business models that do work a little more quickly, both Lumen and to a greater or lesser degree, TTI had the game breaking technology model. And this is building light speed miniaturization. This is building space magic. Mm -hmm. I think a better argument for you would be Progenitus. They almost did not exist on the on, on the system wide stage yeah. before they broke in, made a massive discovery and leveraged that into becoming the new pharmaceutical vendor of health and happiness. Yeah, they had a societal revolution. That was their path to power. Right. So we've really defined three different paths to power. And I'll throw out a fourth one mm -hmm. uh, that's also achievable on a shorter timetable, and that is the monoculture. This is the genotype path. They had a species-wide corporation, the rats, that got together for the single umbrella idea, which is to perfect the rat. And they harnessed the power of an entire family to do it. So that is a model that might work on a shorter timetable, one that PCs can achieve. And we saw how well that worked out. It didn't work out very well. All <laughs> of the one species corporations seem to have blown up dramatically. There's the uh, the cat wars and the rat wars. I've actually, I think there's a new failed megacorp that was just alluded to in the lore book, which is the corporation that originally commissioned Longbow. They died of uh, insurance fraud. <laughs> hmm. But I don't think they were monoculture necessarily. I may have made that up. Clever. But yeah, so I think circling back, I think that is a very valid question. But which one again? <laughs> so I want to be a CEO. Oh, OK. <laughs> All the way back. All the way back. So we've been talking about like the PC's microcorp for a little bit for a little bit now. This is something that is maybe a very short term, transient goal based 
corporation. But at least in the current rule set, um, you can have characters that are very economically built from the start that maybe aren't just personally wealthy, if that even exists in this world, but might be part of a different corporation, not not the one that the PCs are kind of owning, but legitimately built into or bought into a different corporation. This is the Allegiance system? It's it's a little bit the Allegiance system. It's a little bit more putting tons of points into economy and just actually being rich. Right. Yeah, like the higher levels of community actually, well, I think an entire branch of community affects your reputation on a solar system-wide level. Mm-hmm. And you can buy two bot- dots in that the same way you can buy two dots in strength. Yep. So, I mean, if one of your characters is the Tony Stark of this particular localized area, then that becomes a little bit different than, well, what's the party corporation's path to becoming massive? You already have a decently sized, decently established corporation that maybe already has a couple of areas, at least locally, that they play in and have power in. And maybe you're now moving into that corporation, taking over some of the higher executive officer positions and growing it from there. So you're talking about Tony Stark, and I think this is a good place to branch off into one one question I had, which is, what on earth is the appeal of being the CEO of Megacorp? I don't personally find that there is any, because Tony Stark is the comic book model, and of course there's Elon Musk, who is his own crazy jet-setting weird universe himself. But I feel like the role of CEO or head of a corporation, how are you to find that, is not very PC-friendly. There's the bad CEO, like the Sun character from the Tron sequel. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I can't remember his name, but he doesn't really want to be a CEO, but he has that power and does it to commit chaos. Oh, sure. And I think the distinction there is that's a, a, a lighter corporation. Mm-hmm. And that could be kind of fun. I think that's probably more fun than actually running an actual corporation that you care about. Absolutely. <laughs> I don't know if you necessarily want to look too heavily into the superhero genre for this, but everywhere you look that you have the richy riches of that particular world. None of them are actually, they're all CEOs, but that's just their day job. Right. Whether it's Batman, Tony Stark, Mm -hmm. Lex Luthor, name some of the others. They're they're all, but, you know, they're, they're actually superheroes on the side. Uh-huh. Which, you know, plays through the genre, but still, it it doesn't really play up the, oh, I'm rich, other than a passing joke of, what's your superpower? Hmm. I'm rich. Or Tony Stark walks around and, oh, yeah, he has a tower. Why does he have a tower? Because he's rich. But the fun of the characters and where they seem to play the most interest, where where they're doing things, is having a suit of power armor, mm-hmm. having all the toys, having all the riches. It's It's not necessarily oh, I'm a CEO, it's I'm rich and can and have the purchasing power to get all the fancy toys. And are incidentally a CEO, okay. Yeah, but you couldn't really have that that kind of fun game if you were talking about somebody that's the head of a, a nation necessarily. They're kind of bound to think, well, in an ideal world, they're bound to a certain code of conduct. They're bound to they have the world's eyes looking at them and they can't just fly around in a suit of power armor, necessarily. I keep saying things like this, and I keep being proven wrong <laughs> by this universe. Yeah. But it feels like being in the seat of real true power over something that's the size of a nation that affects millions of people it is going to be more than a day job. It, it also brings the question of if you're spending all your time out fighting crime or doing whatever— uh-huh you're probably not actually doing the job of the CEO, which means other people are. Right. So who's the actual CEO? And are they going to shoot you? (laughs) You don't shoot people at that level. You you just remove them. (laughs) So rather than being the head of a megacorp, I think that's more the celebrity head of a modest sized corporation devoted to elite R&D and showboating. Or the option that's actually in canon is the role of the shadow president. And that is a much more James Bond figure. The shadow president, which gets a lot of write-up in the lore book, is the person who is behind the scenes for a number of reasons that has the keys and the power of the entire corporation Arguably more powerful than the CEO, but required to move clandestinely because if the corporation itself found out who has the off switch, they would nuke him. (laughs) 
uh, not an exaggeration. <laughs> so that's a role where one person can have a lot of power. They can have secret hologram meeting room chats with the rest of the Shadow Corporation. They're free to move about the country and, in fact, encouraged to. And that person is still their own person. They don't live for the company. They live to check the company's power. But they have all of the company's resources and they can make their own damn rocket suit if they want to. That kind of sounds like a full-time undercover boss scenario. Yeah, totally. But it's not demanding in the same way that being the actual functional organizational head or the more likely the committee that heads a uh, corp would be. Oh, oh yeah. Think, think of it in a, a real world analogy here in Texas, we have the, the grocery store H-E-B and the man who founded it, Mr. H-E Butts goes undercover as a bagger, dresses up as an ordinary employee and appears in stores to secretly review them. Now, this is the opposite of fun James Bond or interesting, but it's a real world example of what you're talking about, right? You're messing with my conceit, sir. <laughs> of the two, I think the shadow CEO is probably more appropriate for PCs than, than the limelight CEO. Right. You can also get a lot done with the, the board of directors. I mean, while the CEO is the face of the company, while a lot of the executive officers are the face in most corporations, you do still have the board that, really controls all the money and really kind of controls the direction of the corporation and reaps the benefits thereof without necessarily having the full-time job or the face of the company. You really get the vampire, the masquerade style politics there too. Ancient blood feuds and sudden subtle campaigns against someone. Fun. And if that's what your PCs are actually looking for, that that might be the, I want to be a megacorp sure. route that, they want to take which is kind of like playing royalty in a ye old game mm -hmm. yeah and that's really where the power brokers are going to be because they presumably pick and choose the ceo himself or herself or itself themselves themselves <laughs> when we first started talking about this topic a lot of us went towards the epic destiny mode that dnd fourth had put out there this is a idea that's been developing in the Dungeons and Dragons universe for quite some time, where you look at the end of your story and you achieve something like immortality, whether that's the king of the realm or a demon lord or a, a denizen of the realm of Ravenloft or a little godling or something like that. This is your character's story ending arc. Is it an ap apothesis? Is that the word? Apotheosis. Apotheosis. Apothesis, maybe. Apo Aposentosis. Apocalocentosis. Okay. Just becoming a gourd. Corbo's English major, everyone. <laughs> that was gourd, not god. You can be the gourd god if you really want to. I do. That, that might not be a taken position at the moment. I can also never tell when he's making stuff up. I am the pumpkin <laughs> king. I'm not qualified. So at least the shadow presidency, if not CEO of a megacorp, seems to be a reasonable epic destiny for a character. Um, maybe. Um, well, let's try that again. The epic destiny model might be a reasonable way to look at the idea of a CEO or uh, a shadow president as a character's destiny. It's likely the end of their story. There's not going to be a graceful escape from that necessarily. It's it's the going to be the high point focal. What's the word for the epic? Apogee? Yeah, it's going to be the apogee of their career. Mm -hmm. I started out wondering if maybe CEO slash shadow president is analogous to being the king of a nation. And I think in terms of the ability to run around and do your own thing, it probably is. Later on, I started thinking that maybe it was more analogous to being a god because A, of the level of earth-shaking power you have. These this, The megacorps have deep roots and each one controls a planet more or less or that level of power. Uh -huh. The lives of billions are depend largely on their decisions. They go back centuries. Their reach is more like a game of Civ than uh, a one-person show. And kind of likewise, they have something like temples. They have orders of people around them. They have this complex bureaucracy built up to support them. Rather like uh, the Emperor of Earth in Warhammer 40K, mm -hmm. they're at the center of a vast accumulated pile of bureaucracy and construction and 
and such. N- not not a single person anymore, but the focus of a vast and sprawling thing, mm-hmm. which feels more like a god in the uh, old Greek tradition than any sort of earthly power force. Within the campaign world, it's the highest that their star can rise in either canon or imagination. Exactly. Except for TTI. Their imagination is expanded. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure I like the comparison to D&D 4th Ed, though. If only because the character classes in 4th Ed are pretty much on rails. Even 3rd, which I think is where the Epic Destinies pull a little bit more from. Um, but the classes are very much on rails. You, you could trace a progression through the levels, which are an artificial concept, to different checkpoints or signposts when you get new powers or new changing of your titles. And mm-hmm. that's a little bit too rigid for HSD. I think that one of the things that Dungeons & Dragons has done that's kind of toxic is created this idea that a successful campaign is one that moves from level 1 to 30. That's not how stories work. Right. <laughs> it it works for D&D, so it works for that that's <laughs> small I, slice of role-playing. I'm, I'm going to interrupt you, Ashtar. How well did it work for us in D&D? Did you have fun? No. Did I have fun keeping you at level five or below for every campaign I ever ran? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. Well, the campaign we got to that went to level 21, it ended up being a horrible, grueling grind session that never ended. Right. Yeah. That got a little Uh, different. That is not because we were at that level. I mean, if we had swapped to a a different game at the end, it it still would have been the same, same grind. That's fair. But I don't think that assuming that something that runs from shoeshiner to God is necessarily the only model for success. And I think that's something that D&D kind of implies, and it's simply not the case. Yeah. I think setting up the expectation that the shoeshiner with the PC label over them can become a God is one of the failings that it puts in. Take that part out, the, the expectation that almost game time equals growth and power. And I think you're a lot healthier. Mm-hmm. I think the, the kind of one dangerous thing is that in HSD, money matters, that there's all sorts of cool stuff. Your access to the cool stuff is based on your access to money. And if you're a CEO, it's hard to imagine a CEO that does not have money. Not, not impossible to, to imagine that. But and if you have unrestricted access to all the cool toys in the game, well, that's... Where do you go from there? If you're starting off with a Hackmaster plus 12, then <laughs> what is there to want? I mean, that's a that's a Monty Hall campaign, and there are both Game Masters and players that want that type of thing, uh-huh. either for stress relief or just power fantasy. So it's certainly not my style, but it is a valid style. It seems like there's a suggestion that play in at least first edition HSD is going to kind of accelerate down the money path. So rather like your characters become progressively more powerful in White Wolf as you go along, eventually money starts accruing faster and faster and you start to be able to make these big purchases and start to have more world-shaping power if you follow that advancement thread. 2.0 doesn't seem to go down that road as heavily. It's got a more controlled path. Which is interesting because the the flip side of the D&D, you know, time equals money equals power thing appears to be my current campaign where we've We've already commented once that the longer we play, the poorer you seem to be getting. (laughs) (laughs) Just hand us a shovel. We'll dig ourselves deeper. (laughs) Just as a related thing, I'm thinking of like the the, the hero system where, uh, or I think other point-based systems, where if you want your character to have a sniper rifle, you pay for it with character points. Now, you you might have the character advantage that you're very rich, which means you could buy stuff, but if you buy it and keep it, you really need to pay for it with character points. Otherwise, the GM is allowed to take it away from you. <laughs> that the money exists only for temporary stuff kind of outside of the games, the, the, the core game system. If your character, you know, first thing in the game, buys a set of power armor, well, and never takes it off, well, that's that's your character. You, you can't do that. that that's, that's cheating. But that's, that's a very different world than more simulationist games, which I think this tend a little bit towards where money actually makes a difference. Because like in Hero or White Wolf or whatever, money just does not really matter. I mean, it matters for, oh, I want to get a limousine to go to the ball. Well, you can't because you have no money. But, you know, it doesn't mean you can't go to the ball. 
Whereas in this game, it's like, oh, I want to reload my gun. Well, you probably want to buy bullets then. <laughs> Sorry, the fact that your character started with a gun does not mean you always have a supply of bullets. Not in this world. Mm, I don't fully agree with that. I agree with you. I, I definitely agree that the feeling is there, that, uh -huh. that in, in point by games, money is something that you buy with points, and it's really more flavor text than core character. Right. That's less so true in HSD, but yeah. HSD also, first dead, of course, um, builds in and maintains the co component of, well, you can do most of your flavor text stuff. You can do low level flavor text stuff just at will. You, you have basic purchasing power. You're, uh -huh. you're never broke. And for the stuff that actually costs money, you should also be getting at least a trickle allowance of cash, even if you just sit on your butt for a week. Uh -huh. At that point you have enough to buy a couple of rounds of ammunition or you have enough to buy a couple of other things. Mm -hmm. And if you're really facing the point where I can't afford to reload my gun, that that might be just simply that you've overextended your credit line. You, you've right. overextended, you've bought a gun that's far too expensive for your income. Sure. And that there's there can be interest there. I mean, if if your rifle actually takes a week of your purchasing power to shoot... You better have a backup weapon. Yeah. And it's much more interesting when the combat hits a point that you pull out the rifle and take a shot with it because that, that actually costs you. Right. And I think that's an interesting decision. Sure. No, it, it, it is. I mean, I'm not saying one is better or worse. Just they are, they are different approaches. I mean, Tony Stark, well, why would he keep, keep, keep track of, of ammo purchases? But <laughs> in, in your game, yeah, every time you pull the trigger, it's like, yeah, we're going to pay for that. <laughs> Guess we're not making the spaceship payment this week. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, you're you're not that broke. Well, but we're always aware of it. Yes, we we've never come to a point when we have to say, "Sorry, we surrender. We can't afford this contract." <laughs> <laughs> no, we just go deeper in debt. <laughs> That's right. So, what makes a megacorp? This gets a lot of play in the lore book. And I think it's worth talking about in this in this context, since the question is, can I have one? There's a couple of kind of key identifiers of a megacorp, and Lumen breaks all of these rules because that's what Lumen does. The first one is that there's a sort of universal recognition of a megacorp. Uh, people respect Marsco's branding and name. F at least four of the megacorporations have been here for 300 plus years. All of these things have a huge amount of cultural weight behind them. And when Lumen came in on the scene, the sheer power they put into play, essentially the ability to give people full access to the entire solar system in hours rather than months, that brought them the recognition to have the label Megacorp slapped on them immediately. They were the ultimate game changer, the ultimate, ultimate disruptive technology. Mm -hmm. Let's be honest, uh, the, the recognition that the Megacorps get is borderline reverence, borderline worship. It's not simply... Oh, yeah, I know Walmart. Everybody knows Walmart. It's mm -hmm. everybody knows Marsco. Marsco created everybody. What do you mean? Why are you asking this question type mm -hmm. of thing? Yeah, you have the, the cultural residence of like a FIFA team. So thing one is, will the universe recognize me as a megacorp? Thing two, and this is one that's going to get the PCs, <laughs> is uh, the weight of centuries that kind of goes behind that. Another characteristic of most megacorps is they have an awful lot of subsidiaries. And this serves a couple of different functions. First off, it just shows that no one organization can be everything at once. So they have to branch off these other things to handle independent tasks, to maintain an organizational structure. Secondly, they are there to take the blame, <laughs> to be the flack. They're there to, to hold the bad energy of the corporation. And if the corporation has to do something dark, they have to wipe out a small moon or something like that, then the subsidiaries can have the goodwill to take the fall. Well, no, have to good, have the goodwill to sustain the company. When daddy has to be angry, they can play uh, like mommy or good cop to bad good, cop good, or something. Right. Yeah. Uh, either way, it's a game of uh, look the other way, hide behind the curtain, sort of a shell game of goodwill. Related to that, they have corp towns and citizens. They have cultural resources that uh, are really deep and millions of people under their control billions perhaps and again this is something that lumen doesn't doesn't have all of those rules well i think we can definitely agree that the the pcs would not organically build a megacorp right 
Because the other corporations, the other mega corporations, the other subsidiaries are not just passive actors on the field. They're actively protecting their turf. And you could certainly start the PCs at trying to take over the corner of a street, trying to take over a business, trying to take over a block, trying to take over a street and incrementally start working your way up. And you're talking about a very long campaign and you're really walking through all of the challenges, all of the interesting conflicts at every level as the levels very slowly grow upwards. But there's a lot of levels and a lot of repetition in that type of thing before you even get to a moderately sized company or holding of people and places and resources. Organically is it really not going to be the way to go to become a megacorp, which may be the question. If, if, if you have one PC that wants to be the CEO, or if you have the party that wants to be the CEO, do they really need a megacorp or do they just want the resources and the power? Right. Because if they just want the resources and the power, you can grow organically into a local or a planet-wide powerhouse without necessarily having to approach the megacorp option. And this is a place, time and again I say this, where I think the Exo Draconis rulebook is really myopic because you can't name one corporation. There's not one business named in all of the HSD lore that isn't a megacorp. <laughs> uh, okay, there, there are like two of them, and Revitalon and Genesis. That's it. Those are the only ones. And one of them is in a novel. It doesn't count. <laughs> Anyone looking at this book, I think, is going to logically assume that the only way to be in business is to be Megacorp. And that's simply not the case. You don't even have to be a subsidiary. You can be your own active agency and corporation. But especially if you have the GM input and the, the party as a whole does want to actually be a Megacorp, you, you don't have to go the organic route. You can fracture break or overtake a megacorp and basically assume their market portfolio and resources already. And this could be a very wide ranging plot. ASR could be doing something shadowy and wrong and the, the PCs discover it partway through and break up the ASR leadership and take over their holdings. The lore book unpacks a lot of ancient secrets and assumptions we've made about the original book because they were written in the original book. <sighs> and one of them is that Mars Co. was formed from three corporations and it was some sort of peaceful merger. That's not necessarily the case. What if one of those corporations fissioned off? Kind of the opposite of that. You'd spoken a little earlier about uh, that the corporation, the megacorps are active agents. They plot and they act and they respond to each other and they have this kind of complicated dance. So sort of a, the enemy of my enemy is my friend scenario. Three or four megacorporations aligned together could prop up a new business that's specifically there to oppose Lumen, Marsco. I think one of the blessings in this whole system is that Marsco is asleep. But if it wakes up and starts to take a, an active role, something may need to be set up to oppose it. That's where all the PCs could be shoved into by the agency of several megacorps. And that's something that happened on the spot on a timetable of a few years as opposed to a few centuries. I, I, I like re reducing things to the basic components. And so corporations, I mean, anyone can be a corporation. You can be a little, little orphan Annie, the corporation. Mm -hmm. um, and so kind of what, why a megacorp as opposed to an easily attainable corporation, which is why I keep coming back to the money, is that they have tons of money. There's no such thing as a, as a poor megacorp, right? By definition, the, the, they can all buy cities. Yep. Um, and they have recognition across the, the entire solar system. So kind of their corporations, which have money and uh, social reach pegged at the max. So why do you want that? Wh wh why do you want to have those things maxed? I mean, one obvious one is I want lots of goodies that I can buy with it without unlimited money. I want the right to do anything you know, to be legally untouchable because I'm part of a huge, powerful group, which, which are kind of negative things in a story. Well, legally untouchable because as the head of the group that makes the laws, you, you set the laws. Right. And you, you simply say, these laws don't apply to me, and thus is law. Right. F from the perspective of the PCs should be struggling. But, but again, if, if we go back to the, the, the kind of the, internal corporate espionage kind of that thing that that works fine 
but 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 I think if, to me, if you're going to talk about being megacorp, you have to look very very closely at how is unlimited money and effectively unlimited status going to affect what players do. Is that going to is that going to ruin your ideas for what would be interesting challenges or puzzles? So what if we assume that this is not about the journey to becoming a megacorp, but you're starting off as your party is maybe a third of the board of directors of a corporation. Mm-hmm. Let's say your group of four players, let's say your group of four PCs is a third of a 12 person board. I think that might make a compelling mid arc, short arc campaign. I would not want to play it forever because it sounds really tedious for more than five or six games, but for short duration, that level of kind of espionage and rich resources might be a lot of fun or as a backdrop, like alt game f- that shows how things are moving in the background of your main campaign. Do wines. I think the answer to yours really depends on a very foundational question. It's uh-huh. why is there a group of people sitting around a table playing a game? Uh-huh. And if that is to struggle against overwhelming odds, then yeah, your, your question makes perfect sense. It's not appropriate. <laughs> if it's... <laughs> Is success desirable? <laughs> Ashtar. <laughs> Shush. If, uh, you know, if, if the story that the group is trying to tell is maybe something a little fluffier or a little sillier, then, then maybe the challenge isn't highlight anymore. Uh-huh. If it is a loot fantasy or a power fantasy and people are blowing off steam and and they're playing that video game where they're the heroes and they're just dominating the opposition, suddenly that's much more compelling. You you can have characters, their CEOs that have those resources. It's not about a challenge to their standing. It's Uh about basically how they're imposing their will on the world or how they're achieving the goals that they've decided to set in front of themselves. And there can be a compelling story there. I suppose so. I I just like, like to see people work for it. (laughs) <laughs> well, the question is, what if the PCs want to make their own megacorp? And you can have no end of challenges simply trying to build, maintain, and defend your corporation, regardless of whether you ever get to the megacorp stage. And I don't think it's reasonable to assume that you will, unless the game master and table agrees that that's where it's going to go. But but that question might be, is it? can the PCs play a corporation trying to get bigger? Not... Because the, the Megacorp thing is a terminus after a long, long... <laughs> In Rifts, they have the Ultra Corp. <laughs> of course. Yeah, I think we do need to make a slight distinction. If we're talking about a character desire or the, the PC's desire, then Megacorp might not be the best route. And, and honestly, that wasn't necessarily the question. The question was, can I be CEO? And then the question there is... Absolutely. You, you can grow to be CEO of a major corporation and have sure. the resources without necessarily bringing the megacorp in. Well, the question is, what if the PCs wanted to make their own megacorp? Stop trying to infect reality on my <laughs> assertions I, here. I wrote it down. <laughs> um, if you have the GM involved, though, then the story is involved with being the megacorp. And Really, the question no longer is, can I be CEO at the Megacorp? It's where is the story going that is knocking down or replacing the Megacorp? Because that becomes a little bit more external. And that is a very compelling story. If you have if you have in mind a longer campaign or a higher power campaign, or you've got people that have been playing HSD for a long time and are kind of tired of running around with knives and pistols, uh-huh. play the other side. Have some fun. See what, see what the good life looks like. Yeah... Okay. Well, another thing just I'm nervous about is like, well, why don't we start off our our D&D campaign at level 30? Uh, I'm hearing that's a possible... If if that's what's meant, then, well, I think we can see why there's problems with that. In the time that I've played with y'all, we've never started off campaigns at epic tier, even at very high tier. And I think that's very much a table-specific thing. Sure. Because there are... Definitely rules in D&D for starting off at heroic level or starting off at epic level. And those are taken advantage of. Which we have done. We, I did a campaign where we started off at, at epic level. Or no, I'm sorry. Heroic. At the, the yeah. heroic level, yeah. I did one where you started off at god level, but you weren't there. Really? I think I was in high school. <laughs> oh, sure, sure. That doesn't count. <laughs> but you do have a very similar PC personal 
problem with Star Enough at that level. The, the first, how many games are, well, what can I do? Well, what does this ability do? Well, oh, I forgot to use this ability when it was perfectly uh-huh. usable at this point, and it would have been the right thing to do. You, you can take that to the character side as well. It's like, well, what abilities does a CEO actually have? What power do you have? Do you know all the corporations, all the holdings that you have? Do you know where your resources are? Nobody can. And actually, <laughs> there is an answer for this in, in the lore book now. And uh, it's, it's an interesting one. But you won't tell us. No, I've written it down. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Just organizing my notes. Uh, this is theoretically on page 21 of the, uh, of the lore book, Song, uh, Sound and Silence. Fraser describes the organizational structure of a megacorp as a complex pyramid. It's a pyramid where every level is separated with from the one beneath it by uh, sort of a one-way mirror. So the people on the level above can see the level below quite clearly. And they can see below that fairly clearly as well, but the further you go down, the less ability they have to perceive. At the very bottom level, there might be a million people or a million, he calls them pillars, that support the level up. You go up one level and there's like 10,000 pillars. You go up one level and there's a few hundred. You, at, at the very top, maybe there isn't, maybe it never gets just one, but you'll get to like 10 or 12 pillars that support the company somehow. Any one pillar can make a significant change on its own level. They can do significant harm or whatever to the level beneath them. But their ability to shape the overall structure of the pyramid itself is pretty pretty weak one pillar toppling at the top one rogue agent at the top one oddball lunatic at the top can cause a lot of harm but even they are not going to radically change the shape of the pyramid itself or its structure it's a really neat analogy it's kind of fractal because no matter where you are in this scheme you can't really see what the powers above you are doing and you can only gain limited knowledge of the shapes beneath you and everybody is kind of equally in the dark except for the very top I, I like the analogy a lot. It, it works for me. There are two groups that are outside of the pyramid structure. The shadow presidents and small, light, unbound agencies like the PCs. So I think that this metaphor and the ways to fight it both suggest that the standard assumptions of the PCs are that they are not necessarily cogs in the machine, that they are able to act on multiple levels at once because they are outside of it. It's a it works for me as a metaphor. I also think you're after you're bringing up the, the notion of what what do the people that play the game want? Sometimes people just want to play a snow leopard, and it doesn't have to be a big deal that it's a snow leopard or or hyena. Some people just always play hyenas. They don't really always. care if it has any real game effect. It just makes them happy. Or mm-hmm. elves. Some people. They, all they want to do is play an elf. They don't care anything else. It's just it, it's their little doll kind of. And, and if, if you just want your character to be the best swordsman in the world, just as as an identity, because that makes you happy, that's fine. If you want to be the best swordsman in the world, and literally, no, I want to have the highest stats, higher than everyone else. Okay, that's a problem. But if you just want to say your identity is, I view myself as a as a great swordsman. I want people to think of me like that. Well, then that's that's fine. So, so that, that can be kind of it. Like, if you want to be a CEO, that's fine. As long as you understand, it's not going to give you a free pass out of the same problems everyone else has. To extend the example that you just had about the swordsman, uh-huh. it's like, my identity is I'm the best swordsman ever. Right. Or I want to have the best stats and be the best swordsman. Uh-huh. Are both a little bit different from one step further of, I want the world to recognize me as the best swordsman. Okay, so. I think that's that supports what we're asking here. It's like, um, do you just want to be a CEO? Boom, you have a microcorp, you're CEO. Congrats. Yeah. You, the, the PCs are your workers now. Uh, do you, what, no, do you actually want to be a CEO? Okay, if your stats support it, if you have enough um, social and version one uh, economic dots, uh-huh. you, you can be CEO of a corporation that's out there. Go ahead and define it, where they are, what they can do. Do you want the world to recognize you as CEO of a megacorp? That's a much different scale. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think that's a very valid analogy. 
again, again, I just see this. This is surrounded by pitfalls of make sure you don't do this. Make sure you don't break things by too much access to money, too much access to status, too much access to reputation. Yeah, it may be a standard goal, but I don't think it'd be a standard campaign. So like every epic destiny ever. Sure, you can become a god. And then your character goes away because you've achieved godhood and moved on to a different dimension. So right. we're going to start a new campaign now. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, that's the end of the story. Yeah. I mean, unless you can you come up with a setup. I mean, I, I think you're mentioning, what was it, the, one of the corporations, the, the actual shadow CEO is somebody who actually can't let anyone find them? No. So every every corporation, well, every megacorp that's a spinoff of Marsco has a shadow president somewhere in it. And that person has the keys, the big red button, the off switches, all the blackmail material. That person exists to shut down the company if they go rogue. Hmm. And they have a lot of power besides that, but they really can't use too much of it because if the corporation figures out who they are, then the board members will say, you need to die now. <laughs> that's that's the end of your story. So they have a lot of power, but they have to walk fairly lightly. Right. Or as an analogy in the, the fables, uh, graphic novels, uh, Geppetto. Mm-hmm. The, the one who, who carved the wood copies of all the leaders of all the nations. So no one knew that he was actually running everything. That'd be an analogy, right? Yeah, yeah. Really, uh, the, the power behind the throne or the, or the knife behind the throne. That, that really brings up, though, I mean, what does going rogue look like for a megacorporation? They are almost completely defining reality for their sphere of influence. Uh -huh. Maybe not actually the the functions of the universe, but social structure, financial structure, the lives of untold billions of people on a day-to-day -day basis. At what point does doing what they think best turn into going rogue? It's when they start giving refunds. <laughs> the, uh, Point to you, sir. <laughs> the aggressive war between TTI and Progenitus is probably an example of a corporation that can go very wrong. Most of the other corporations have kind of lighthearted rivalries, but those two groups will literally go to war against each other. They hate each other that much. But at what point does that war become worse than pushing the big red button and utterly destroying the megacorp? <laughs> Presumably it's happened. Presumably. Hmm. Would we even know? Yeah. Well, uh, making a slave race. That didn't go very well that one time. That's true. And the story of the Mouse Revolution may very well be one of those two could be true stories. I think we've discussed that. So that may be a ch an example where a shadow president took action. Maybe someone finally said, you know, this is going too far. We are enslaving a race of people in a not very subtle way. This needs to end. Here's the addresses of the board members, guys. Go have fun. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's lemming, sir. Oh, my bad. <laughs> There's the implication that Soul's history has had a great many megacorporations. In, in point of fact, it's more like 11, maybe 10. But companies have come and gone. We just don't have their stories. So at this point, uh, maybe I'll go back and revise my original answer as much as I, I really like the concept of balliftics. Um, maybe a startup that teaches other people to build corporations would, would just work out so much better. A court building court. <laughs> Meta consultants. Hey, there's even a name. <laughs> I like that. This is the most fantastic story I've ever heard. And every word of it's true, too. Meanwhile, on Sundays, we are starting to wrap up the current arc of the White Wolf game we're playing as Ashtar recharges his creative batteries. We've finished our spirit quests, and now the PCs are trying to avoid facing off with the World Trade Organization officers that are coming to visit. Should be fun bringing the world right to the PCs. I'm happy about this. Mm. One of the challenges that I feel like we're facing, particularly in this party, as I'm working to bring everybody to the table and have a good game that involves four very dis different people. Very different people. Very different. But it's a problem that 
we have always had, and it's probably a problem that every gaming set, every gaming group has, unless you've really, really worked the fear the boot group template, which no one I know has, is how do you bring a ragtag group of misfits together to form a unified party? Part of me thinks it's not possible. Part of me thinks it's it's achievable for linear quests, uh, even if they're not terribly well-roaded. If you have an epic quest with an obvious goal and a relatively clear path to get there, I think a ragtag group of misfits can have a really fun time going down that road. And maybe they won't deviate too much. But if you're into sandbox gaming, which HSD lends itself to and White Wolf lends itself to, that's when having a unplanned, chaotic, party really is is very hard to wrangle right the things run off the rails which isn't that bad but it runs off the rails in different directions for different people and that's bad when you're talking about the linear quest you're more so talking about an allegiance of convenience you you can have very disparate very strange and weird characters that have nothing in common except a common goal and for the duration of that common goal sure they'll put aside the differences and work together I feel like we've tried time and again to have a focused concept, a, a, a group idea. It's come close to succeeding in Ashtar's HST campaign because the group is a corporation and that corporation has a goal, even if it's a somewhat half-assed goal. Yes, but how many of us take it seriously? <laughs> You're the pseudo CEO and leader of the group. You, you better be taking it seriously. But at least there's a common... In that case, that is what I'm doing. <laughs> yes. At least there's a common focus and an agreement that this is a good thing. And one person signs the paychecks. In a canonical Werewolf the Apocalypse game, the group is a pack, and all werewolf packs are created for a specific focus. If it's protect the Everglades, or it's go and find the perfect present for Mama Fortuna, or something like that. Every pack exists for a specific goal. It may be very general. It may be very specific. And here I thought the pack structure was more of a, I'm your daddy. You're in this pack now. No, no, no. There's <laughs> actually, it's, it's actually, again, Canon Werewolf, a pack is built around a spirit totem. So a fairly monomaniacal creature that's got a specific focus and agenda. The pack is focused on a specific task. Um, the the Black Spiral Dancer group in my in my campaign is very interested in spreading psychocelibin mushrooms to the area nearby. That's what they do. They have a focus. They have a concept. The PCs in my the PCs in our campaign are not werewolves. They are not a pack yet. They're better. They're hyenas. The uh, one of them is a hyena, and they're not magically mystically mystically unified in a single direction. And it's showing, I think. Yeah. No, I think it is showing. I don't think it's necessarily a weakness, but it is a challenge to be overcome. And I took a different approach bringing together the HSD campaign. Every While I gave the PCs, I think, five or six different starting packages, starting options, all of them were, you're a corporation and this is the surroundings. Uh -huh. So while there's a very light link it was still a link everybody is in the corporation you have each other's phone number you don't have to jump through hoops to figure out why you're going along with something you're going along because you have some minor interest in the corporation yeah that's the shadow run model too it's you're there to make money and doing so by taking on small jobs and tasks right and you can go to you can go many different ways it's it's more of a spectrum than a a binary choice, but you can make that a very light link, a very light relationship between the characters, which is kind of what I did. The corporation doesn't have a vision put out by the GM. That it doesn't have a um, a goal in mind. Uh -huh. That the only force that's keeping the corporation moving is yeah. you own a slightly expensive piece of hardware and you're in debt on it. Mm -hmm. um, if that ship broke down or got sold, then potentially there's no real reason for the corporation anymore. So how you go around that little push of, hey, you do need to pay payments on this ever so often, mm -hmm. kind of lets a little bit more of a sandbox game open up. 
um, without the characters going in five different directions. Uh, but the other side of that, moving moving to the other, moving to a more restrictive one, would be like a corporation that actually has a vision or has a quest. The the PCs come together because they have a goal in mind that they're that the game engine is telling them to go do, mm-hmm. and. I don't think that's really much of a sandbox anymore, but it is much stickier for the PCs because well, you, you can't just go off and go do your side quest. We need to go do this now uh-huh. because that's the game. I feel like the same desire on my part to have a sandbox world that you can explore encourages me to let the players build a party that's whatever they want to be. And so the party is kind of its own sandbox, which in the end is just a pile of sand. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it is useful to put links between the characters, even if it is a little bit artificial, just because that, that builds some sort of background. Mm-hmm. I think, I, think I, I tried that with, with, with one of the games is giving people cards, just saying, okay, you, all right, I, I hand you a card and it says, okay, you know a secret about player B. Make it up. Tell me what it is. It's true. Uh, or you have a relationship with this character. Define what that relationship is. It's totally up to the player, but to force people to work things in with, with, with each other. Sadly, that game never ran long enough for us to see if it worked out well, but it's a good sound idea. I felt good about it. It's kind of the model of the fiasco game where you spend the first half of the game building relationships and then watching them fall apart. Hmm. It was a good concept. I think it was hurt by having some very weird character, uh, players in the party. Yeah. That can be a challenge. If you've got a good group that is tight-knit, has played together, and kind of knows a little bit about each other, then I think that can be very successful. If it's a little bit less so, or you're not as sure about what the game system, how the game system works out, as a game master, I leaned a little bit more towards putting a very light, arbitrary link between the characters in place. It doesn't really have to be chains or shackles, just some sort of commonality that they have. Right. I think if I was to do this game over again, I would ask the players to, before they submit their characters, say how they know each other and really work on building some links and, and stick to it. It's hard because everybody's playing a really special snowflake in this game. It's it's unaligned shape changers from different breeds, different species, different continents. But that would have been a good a good place to begin. Just make sure there's a strong mesh there before the game starts. Right. It's not something that you just kind of half-ass bolt on after you have everything you want. description i don't think i'd want to see it either so we'll wrap up this podcast by asking the hosts what they think is awesome this week what little news articles or new products or whatever they've come across that have filled their lives with joy and possibly relate to science fiction fuzzy animals role-playing etc etc so i'm going to start with wines what have you encountered on the Ars Technica website, etc.? <laughs> no, actually, the thing that I, I would like to say is awesome is I was going through the, the Wikifur database. And, of course, I, I always look up hyenas on everything. And someone has changed it. There had been a, part of the entry on hyenas was hyenas make excellent pets. This has been edited. They now say hyenas do not make excellent pets. <laughs> I love hyenas. They do not make excellent pets. But they make excellent boyfriends. Yes, they do. <laughs> and somewhat terrifying girlfriends. <laughs> My awesome this week was I found an article on Newsweek that talks about an exoplanet. It's OGLE216BLG1190LB. So really catchy, danceable title there, which is floating somewhere near the center of our galaxy in the galactic bulge. It is a planet, definitely a planet. It's orbiting a star, but it's the size of 13 Jupiters. So it's a mega planet that is right on the edge of what would be considered a brown dwarf. It's a planet that's dancing on the edge of being a star. Hmm. A, a crappy star, a really pathetic star, but still a star. And that's that's really neat. I don't know much about it. There's some articles on how... This team of researchers proved it was there. It was a lot of mathematical inference. I don't understand. I understand the individual words, but they don't add up to anything for me. It was still a really neat article. 
And in a science fiction game that can achieve significantly higher than light speed travel, this thing is 20,000 light years away, would make a really fascinating galactic artifact. Ah, neat article. Mm -hmm. I need pictures. So I've been delighted every time I see the uh, see mention of the Boring Company in the news. And and really, it's nothing more than the, the pun in the name of the Boring Company being a company that digs tunnels. But oh, once boring. again, I'm, I'm okay. just laughing. Oh, is this is this the Musk mobile? This is this is once again, the Musk Hyperloop, I believe. One of the other not really articles, but been going through the Orville TV show, the, the new not Star Trek, Star Trek. Oh, right, right, right. And with an eye towards it as a GM resource, each of the episodes is a more or less standalone adventure scenario, if you will, with sci-fi challenges and fantastical places and things and other such things. And if you're a Star Trek fan, which I am, it really tickles a lot of the right places. It hits a lot of the good buttons without being Star Trek, because it's not, but it really captures the feel. But from a GM, it it also present, poses some very interesting questions. And this is kind of a misfit group of adventurers and a spaceship of their own off in the wilds without a large amount of support. So there's a lot of parallels between that and common PCs. So if you haven't checked it out, but it's something that you're remotely interested in, uh, check it out as a resource or check it out for the fun of it. Can you spell that name? Yes. Would you spell that name? Maybe. Is it O-R-V-I-L-L-E? <laughs> yes. Uh, Seth MacFarlane's The Orville. Okay, okay. Well, awesome. So I want to thank you guys for coming together so close to the holidays and look forward to meeting up again and catch you outro line. Intro music is Future Club and outro music is Tronicles, both by Serious Beat. This podcast is copyright 2017 by Radio Free Demos and may be used in any not-for-profit project with appropriate credit and notification. Check out our website, RadioFreeDemos.com, that's D-E-I-M-O-S, for more rambling, resources, links to official and fan-driven content, and our full catalog of episodes. And look for us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. I still think that's one of the stupidest gifts in the book. No, the stupidest <laughs> gift is the camp gift of the Urban Gardeners faction of the Glasswalkers. They can make a seed grow anywhere. That's all. Any seed? Any seed grows anywhere. How quickly? Plant speed. Because if we're talking like, you know, redwood in a window, then I can see a use for that. It, it take, <laughs> it'd take a while. It's not a combat gift. Throw a redwood into somebody's shorts. <laughs> is that a sequoia in your pocket or are you just tapping <laughs>